please have a seat. Our planetarium show will begin shortly. So the other night, one of our presenters, Lauren, right here, she sent me a message. She said, Aurora is going off outside right now. Look out your window. And I was having a rough day, so I grabbed that opportunity to go see some nature. And I just started driving east until it seemed dark enough. I went to Rundle Park. It wasn't quite dark enough. I was going down the Yellowhead, didn't seem quite dark enough, and I kept seeing like all these turnoffs for farmer's fields. And then I saw the turnoff for Cooking Lake, Blackfoot, Provincial Recreation Area, and I was like, yeah, that's my spot. And I drove all the way down the road, and I stopped even just outside the park, and I looked up, and there was the aurora, these beautiful blankets of green and pink and orange. And it was so funny that I, I felt like I, needed the blanket of being beside a park <laughs> to enjoy this experience and feel like, yeah, this is the space where I'm allowed to do that. I love parks, asterisk. <laughs> Welcome to Let's Find Out How to Make a National Park. Yeah. <laughs> My name is Chris Chang and Phillips. I'll be your host for tonight. Let's find out as a podcast about Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichiwiskaigon on Treaty 6 territory and Métis Region 4. We take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and then we find out the answers together. This season, we've been learning all about parks and natural spaces in and around Edmonton. Let's find out as a publication of Taproot Edmonton. Thank you to all the Taproot members who are here tonight. A local journalism initiative doing fascinating, thoughtful reporting in our city. And we were recording live tonight at the Alfred H. Savage Center in the stunning autumn-soaked ravine in White Mud Park. It's a beautiful space with one limitation. There's only room for folks who love and support trans and non-binary people. We ran all out of chairs for other people. So thank you all for joining us tonight. Over the past season, my co-producer, Trevor Chow Fraser, and I have been lucky enough to learn about Edmonton's parks and natural areas with you. We've learned how they've redeemed former dumps, how they echo Edmonton's old river lots, how they're spaces that we will carve out even when they're incomprehensibly small, places we look to to see names that speak to our identities and our encounters with porcupines. And they're places where we pour our hopes for fostering and nurturing other species as small as lichens and as curious as coyotes. But parks can be very illogical, contradictory spaces. In studying Rocky Mountain parks, I've learned that places like Yoho and Banff were created not so much to protect wildlife, but more to help Canadian Pacific get some return on its railway investments by aesthetically managing tourism. They've been sites of coal and lead and zinc mining, logging, collecting trilobites like blueberries, and places where settlers were allowed to hunt and fish while First Nations people were actively excluded from their own territories to distance them from traditional foods and force them to assimilate. Now, many of these spaces are filling up with values of protecting pristine wilderness and indigenous cultural resurgence, two ideas that sometimes sit uneasily beside each other. And parks are still complicated, messy, imperfect places. Even at a city level, they can be dizzyingly overregulated, with paragraphs-long rules about which park benches you can have a beer at if you make a booking ahead of time. We equate parks with nature, but is nature closed from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m.? So it's worth being skeptical about what is meant by the word park when a new one is proposed. Does that mean we're going to get an indigenous co-managed caribou reserve with walking paths only? Or is it gonna be a triangle of concrete in front of a hotel with the skeleton of an old clock tower? <laughs> I think what this all points to is that we think of parks as things that are static, obvious. The rules are the rules. And we forget sometimes that their borders, their furry and flying inhabitants, their values, their names have been hotly contested. They are reflections of struggles between interest groups fighting for different values, whether it be a quick commute or a home for owls or a place for therapeutic riding, a place for mountain biking, a place to learn about beavers. If we love parks and protected spaces, it's up to us to speak up for the values we want to express in them. And we have a golden opportunity ahead of us to do that because a potential national urban park is being proposed for Edmonton's River Valley. 
So tonight, we're going to learn about some of the wonderful, strange, contradictory history of national parks in our area from our first guest, Lauren Markowitz. Then we'll take a little break for you to grab snacks before we talk to two guests about the National Urban Park Plan being proposed, what that might look like. Mac Mail will be speaking, uh, co-founder of our publisher, Taproot Edmondson, uh, about what he's learned reporting on the park for our sister podcast, Speaking Municipally. And Miranda Jimmy will be speaking to the Confederacy of Treaty 6 First Nations involvement in park planning. In that break, you'll be able to start writing down questions to submit to our question cylinder. It's not a bowl today or a bucket. We got a question cylinder. And we'll pick a few to answer on stage. We hope you bring your curiosity, your wit, and your love of our city to the evening. And let's start with the past. So Lauren Markowitz is a public historian specializing in the history of bison conservation in what we now know as Canada. She's a member of the Bison Specialist Group of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. She's worked as an interpreter at various historic sites and national parks in Western Canada. She is not here today with her Parks Canada hat on. <laughs> She's from St. Albert, uh, but currently lives in Waskasu Lake, Saskatchewan. She's also an avid nature nerd, and often found outside in the landscape, hiking or camping. And Lauren is the author of Like Distant Thunder, Canada's Bison Conservation Story, which is very cool. So uh, please welcome Lauren Markowitz to tell us how we've made and unmade national parks in Alberta. All right, thank you very much, uh, everybody. And thank you so much for the kind introduction. So I'm very excited to be here tonight. Um, so I've you know, grown up um, you know, going to national parks, going camping, going hiking, um, but I'm also a historian. And having worked for parks and for different historic sites, one of the things that often strikes me is that, especially within Parks Canada, you have national historic sites, where we do history, and then you have national parks, where we do nature, almost as if um, historic sites don't have like species at risk or conservation concerns or outdoor areas or as if uh, national parks don't have history. And I think there are a lot of very interesting stories that can be told um, in these kinds of spaces. Um, and of course, when you talk about national parks or natural areas as if they're pristine, untouched landscapes, that of course um, contributes to the continued erasure of um, indigenous history and indigenous presence continued from the past all the way through to the present. So I really love talking about the history of a lot of these places. Um, in particular, um, I'm pretty excited Excited to be talking about natural areas because they do have a history and I love talking about these kinds of things. Um, they aren't unchanging and they need members of the public to uh, care about them and support them if we want them to continue to exist into the future as well. I think we'll do next slide. So I want to take you on a little tour of some of the historic national parks in what's now Alberta. Um, you might see on my little map here um, some parks whose names you may not recognize, who have ceased to exist. Because, spoiler alert, national parks can shrink, they can grow, but they can also cease to exist at all. So, next slide, please. <laughs> So uh, one of the oldest national parks in Canada that we do have um, is uh, Elk Island National Park. Um, I know there's some fine folks here today from Elk Island too. Um, so depending on if you count when it started as an entity, um, it was founded in 1906, or when it started as a Dominion Park, it was founded in 1913. Um, but uh, you know, we think about history of parks, we think about parks and why do national parks exist. Today it's very much, when you talk about national parks, they're founded to create, to, uh, to protect a, a specific eco-region. Like we protect the transition zone between the Aspen Parkland and the Boreal Forest or you know, the Taiga or something like that. Um, but at the time that a lot of early parks were founded, um, there was actually a different model. Um, there was scenic parks like Banff, like Jasper, like Yoho, um, which protected beautiful landscapes. Um, and you also had animal parks, which were founded to protect very specific iconic species. Um, Elk Island is in fact one of the only, or I think the only national park in Canada that still exists that was founded on the animal park model, which does explain some interesting quirks uh, with its history and how it's currently managed today. Um, so as the name suggests, even though Elk Island is currently known for its role in bison conservation, Elk Island was in fact founded as an elk preserve. Uh, so um, in the late, late 1800s, early 1900s, a lot of quote-unquote game populations, so animals that people um, had for food, um, were in sharp decline. Um, 
so including elk. So there was this herd of elk, relatively large, 75 or 100 individuals that was spotted um, in the Beaver Hills, in Amiskwichis, right, in the Beaver Hills. Um, and uh, people were very concerned about their continued health. A lot of other populations were in decline. Um, so there was a lot of concern. There was a, a petition that went up. There was, in fact, five particular men from Fort Saskatchewan who approached a man called Frank Oliver. Now, I know if you're Edmonton, History people, I see some people chuckling. Um, Frank Oliver is a very interesting fellow. He was a founder of the Edmonton Bulletin. Um, he was a, a booster for the city of Edmonton. He had some opinions we don't like anymore. But also, um, at the time, he was the minister for the interior. And so when he, the petition kind of hit his desk and these, these men had approached him, he was quite skeptical of the idea that the herd could be protected. Um, and essentially, because the, the, these men had proposed, we'll build a fence around these elk, right? And he was very skeptical, and he's like, well, I'm not sure we can, we can manage that. Um, so the men put up $5,000 saying, yes, we will build this fence and we will enclose these elk. And so the agreement was, if they could enclose at least 20 elk inside a fence, the government would put up the land. Now this is 1903, 1904, so right before the province of Alberta became the province of Alberta. So the federal government still had control over a lot of this land. Um, and effectively, uh, the men built three sides of a fence. Quite, I'm gesturing for the podcast listeners. Uh, the north side, the east side, and the west side, they herded the elk in and quickly built up the southern side of the fence. No joke. Um, but they did manage to enclose 24 elk and a bonus 34 mule deer. So, <laughs> yes. So the uh, federal government did put up the land. They carved it out of a timber reserve, um, the remnants of which are still the Blackfoot Cooking Lake uh, Provincial Park. Um, so, hooray! A small postage stamp of a national park was created. It was just a, a, a fenced area around Estoten Lake. It wasn't the same size as it is today. Um, but very, very soon after this, Elk Island became known for a very different thing, which was its role in the preservation of the buffalo. So I think we'll, next slide here. Um, I particularly like this, uh, this particular photo. I love the, the gaze of this bison staring straight at us as it walks right towards the camera. <laughs> so, um, so I'm trying to figure out the best way to navigate and the quickest way to navigate through this particular story. Um, so effectively, I think as many people know, um, in the past, there were quite a few bison. You know, people debate different numbers, but just know that there were quite a few, tens of millions, and within a single human lifetime, as many as 30 million bison were slaughtered until there were less than a thousand individuals left. Now I'm whizzing by this point, but I really don't want to make light of that, and I think I really want that number to sit with you. I mean, Elk Island currently manages their population of bison between what, like 800 and 900 individuals-ish? I see some nodding in the audience. Um, and so pretty much the entire North American population of bison in 1890 could fit within the current boundaries of Elk Island National Park. Like, and all of this happened within a single human lifetime. So if you can imagine that level of change here on the prairie, here in the communities of people here, like I really want you to just think about the impact of that. Um, so, uh, and you know, 18, I would say, you know, around a thousand individuals in all of North America. I have lots of thoughts and feelings about that census and I really think it might even be an overestimation, particularly the wood bison population. So I, I have lots of thoughts and feelings about how accurate that is. So effectively, it could have been less than a thousand individuals. So um, all bison today are descended from about seven discrete populations. Two of them had national parks formed around kind of refugia. So you have Yellowstone National Park in the United States, and you have Wood Buffalo National Park in northern Alberta. Those parks were founded in part because there was a herd of bison still within that territory. All of the rest of bison that exists today are from, were wild caught and then raised domestically by ranchers and then re-released 
into conservation herds. So I specifically want to talk about um, a herd that was called the Pablo Allard herd. I swear this is relevant to Elk Island. <laughs> um, so uh, the Pablo Allard herd was founded um, in what's now Montana um, by, uh, there was like a vision that um, a man called Peregrine Falcon Robe had. Um, a relation of his, uh, little Peregrine Falcon Robe, went out and he caught four or six young calves of bison kind of at the height of the destruction during the, one of the last great bison hunts of the 1870s. Um, they raised those bison. It came into the possession of a relation of theirs, Samuel Walking Coyote. Um, eventually, uh, Walking Coyote sold those bison to a pair of Métis ranchers, uh, Michel Pablo and Charles Allard. I do want to emphasize this because I think sometimes the role of Indigenous people in conservation um, isn't highlighted enough. And I think it's really important to know that the majority of bison today descend from the Pablo Allard herd, either through the National Bison Range or through Elk Island. Um, so I do want to highlight the indigenous origins of this, this herd. So, um, walking coyote, uh, Pablo and Allard. So um, any herd that begins with just four or six individuals isn't going to be terribly healthy. Um, and they were ranchers. They understood kind of the health of, of the population. So they bought bison from a guy called um, Charles Jesse Buffalo Jones. Everybody in this story has a cool name. Every, it's, it's mandatory. So uh, Buffalo Jones had bison from Kansas and Texas, and it bought bison from, um, uh, that had been captured up uh, near Prince Albert in, in Saskatchewan, or what's now Saskatchewan. Um, so that's kind of where the, the Pablo Allard herd kind of originated. They grazed their bison on the lands of the Flathead Indian Reservation, because they had relations um, there. Um, uh, even after Allard died, um, some of his herd went to form the the National Bison Range, um, but Pablo still raised those bison on the reservation. Um, but then um, colonialism intervened. Uh, so as a part of a long um, history of dispossession of Indigenous people from their land, um, some quote-unquote surplus land from the reservation was being opened up for settlement, and Pablo could no longer graze his bison on the open range. And thus began the Great Buffalo Roundup of 1906. Uh, actually, let's do the next slide. So he ended up selling his bison through a bunch of different negotiations. He tried to like negotiate with the American government, but then eventually ended up um, negotiating with the folks up here in Canada um, and ended up selling all, well, he thought he had 400. Um, and he thought it would take him one summer. Uh, he had nearly 800 and took them five years. <laughs> so the Great Buffalo Roundup of 1906 lasted until what, like 1912. Um, anyway, so um, it's, an, it's an amazing story. There was a lot of photographers who were working there, a lot of newspaper um, uh, journalists. Um, so I definitely want to write a whole book just on this event because you cannot make this stuff up. There's some amazing anecdotes that come out of it. But effectively, um, these 800 bison were rounded up over time and sent by train up north of the medicine line to what's now Elk Island National Park. Actually, uh, next slide, please. Um, this is a shot of Buffalo at Edmonton. This is actually Lamont. Um, the reason, one of the reasons that Elk Island was chosen was because it was an entirely fenced park. It had been fenced just the year before for the elk. And they could essentially have a train station that was close enough. They could build a fenced corridor all the way from Lamont to the edge of the park and then herd the bison in. So that's how the bison ended up at Elk Island. But it was never their intention to stay there for, for forever, forever. Um, it was originally, the intent was that they were going to be going to a new national park, Buffalo National Park. Um, and then they, so they were sent off once the fences were ready in 1909. Um, so we'll go on to the next slide, please. So uh, this is an, uh, there's actually a lot of photographs in this presentation um, from Buffalo National Park. There was a guy who was selling a lot of postcards. Um, I like this photo because you have um, uh, the, the bison's body language is not terribly happy. It's very aware of its surroundings. You might notice there's a bumper of a car on the right-hand side. So anyway, it's always worth remembering when it comes to, sorry, this is a side note. It's always worth remembering when we look at historical photographs, especially photographs of animals, that it's not a neutral window into the past. It's always, there's always a photographer present, even if you can't see them, and they are also impacting what's going on in the photograph. So anyway, I just like this bison does look very uncomfortable to me. <laughs> anyway, um, so, so Buffalo National Park um, is, uh, it's, 
uh, on the land that's now um, Canadian Forces Base Wainwright. So if you're familiar with um, that area of the province, so further east from here. Um, so it was uh, a national park that only existed from 1909 to 1939. And effectively, um, it faced a lot of challenges. Um, it was actually a victim of its own success because in the absence of natural predation, bison populations increase every year by about 20%. So if you can do math, that's uh, uh, quite a lot. And they were actively um, killing predators. This was a very common thing in national parks. Um, through, uh, and this is not unique to Elk Island, not unique to Buffalo National Park. It was very common across North America as a whole um, that wardens would have guns. They would be killing coyotes um, and, uh, and wolves and things like that too. So no natural predation and fences. Um, so effectively, the bison population ballooned. Um, by the mid-1920s, it was starting to peak at 6,000, 7,000, nearly 8,000, nearly 9,000 individuals in an area that they had estimated to have a carrying capacity of around 5,000 bison. So um, one of the things it was continually plagued by was what do you do about this bison population, right? That was one of the huge challenge. Um, so effectively, um, once you start to get overpopulation, you start to get overgrazing. So there's also like, I should also say, there's also thousands of elk and mule deer and pronghorn yaks and cattle. I, I will explain the yaks later. But there, were, there was a lot, of, a lot of wildlife in this very small area. Um, so you have overgrazing. Um, you, so, you also have disease, like tuberculosis was found in the bison within about a decade. Um, and you also had instances of um, parasites, like a giant liver fluke, uh, which effectively turns the animal's um, liver into like Swiss cheese. Not fun. <laughs> so uh, there were a lot of these kinds of challenges. So pretty much everything, um, uh, all the, the management actions that were being taken by park staff there were with the mind of reducing bison populations. Even though this national park was created to, quote, save the buffalo, right? Um, they had, but um, this was also, so you had, um, let's see. So for example, one of the main things was culling. They did practice culling. Um, they had an abattoir on site. They did sell some of the meat. Although here's the thing, the meat was often condemned because the animals might have been in poor condition or had tuberculosis. Or honestly, you can't really eat like old bull bison meat. It doesn't taste terribly good. Um, so they weren't able to make a profit from that. They were selling the buffalo robes, the hides. If you've ever seen photographs of Mounties from in their winter uniforms throughout the 20th century, early 20th century, they wear buffalo robe jackets. Those come from Buffalo National Park and Elk Island National Park. There's a connection there. Because um, this is a story that also repeated itself at Elk Island. Um, so you have these kind of management decisions happening. And again, I want to be clear, like, I don't know what I would even have done if I was in a decision-making capacity at that time, even with the benefit of hindsight. There truly were no good solutions because every possible um, choice that they had also came at a cost. Um, and one of the things that never seemed to be considered was let's open the gates and let them roam free. That was never a discussion, not in the same way that um, other wildlife is. Throughout the 20th century and even to today, there is a great reluctance um, for, of people to tolerate free-roaming bison compared to elk, to deer, to moose, to other large game animals. There is like, there's just something different about it. And so oftentimes we talk about not just the caring capacity, like the ecological caring capacity, how much um, how many bison will the range tolerate um, in terms of feed? We also talk about the social caring capacity. How much will the neighbors tolerate, right? Um, so one of the other things that the Buffalo National Park tried to do was live transfers. Um, and so the main one was they actually transferred around 6,000, no, six, almost 7,000 young plains bison up to Wood Buffalo National Park, which is a different national park which protects um, a different subspecies of bison. And at the time, it was a heavily criticized decision. Um, but remember, one of the things you have to remember about this time too is the loss of the great bison herds was still within living memory for many people. This was the 1920s. And um, this was only a generation or two before um, that, uh, that these bison were nearly lost. And while they were hyper abundant in Buffalo National Park, 
they were almost extinct elsewhere. So it's a very difficult decision to make. Um, but the, that decision to transfer all those bison up north to Wood Buffalo National Park still has ramifications that are still echoing down to today in terms of hybridization, in terms of disease, and all these different kinds of questions. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, as soon as you start to look into these kinds of stories, it gets really complicated and really muddy very fast. I find it very fascinating. But um, effectively, um, even with the transfer of those 6,000 bison over the course of two years, they could never actually reduce the bison population. Because again, it increases in population by about 20% every single year. Um, so effectively, by the mid to late 1930s, they were in a huge crisis. They were in crisis since the mid 1920s. Um, and remember, um, this is also the 1930s. What else was going on? It was the Great Depression. Um, one of the main problems with Buffalo National Park was that um, they had a lack of federal funding and interest. We bought the bison, we built you a fence, you have the land, what more do you need? You know, um, so again, every single possible management decision came with a cost. None of them were popular. None of them were good options. Um, so essentially, by 1939, um, because of disease, because of the overpopulation issues, um, the animals were slaughtered and the park was abolished. Right? The uh, the park the, that land was then used as a training base during the war for the military, and then uh, in 1947, it officially was transferred and became Canadian Forces Base Wainwright. Um, you can actually still see the park gates if you go there. You can. If you have business on the base, you can just walk up to the gate and you can ask to see the park gates. You can actually do that. They also have a small display herd of bison they got in the 1980s um, as a kind of a, a memorial to the park. Um, so you can also visit that there as well. Um, but uh, yeah, Buffalo National Park is a very interesting um, point in uh, national park history. So uh, next slide, please. Um, oh, yes, I thought maybe you would like to see a video of Buffalo National Park. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so this is a silent film, um, and I recognize that podcasting is an audio medium, so I think, <laughs> I think I'm going to be describing this as we go. So uh, this is a promotional video for Buffalo National Park and Jasper National Park. Actually, you can press play. Um, uh, that was shot in 1919. Um, I think I'll read the title card. Should I read it in a 1920s radio voice? I'm not sure. Wainwright, Alberta, the monarch of the plains at home. Thank you. Lest the buffalo king of North American beasts vanish forever from the western prairies over which he once roamed in countless thousands, the Dominion government maintains at Wainwright a buffalo park 160 square miles in extent. Wainwright, Alberta. So we have here a, a field of bison. Actually, this, I find this one really interesting. She's, this is a, a female bison. She's got a, a, a messed up horn there. They're eat, oh, most of the year, the animals forage for themselves, but during the winter, hay and grain rations are served twice weekly. So you can see they are eating hay in these images. Um, yeah, so you can see the, the wardens tossing hay overboard from a wagon. Uh, this is a cow herd. There's, these are mostly female bison. Um, yeah. Part of the herd, there are 6,000 buffalo in the park. This is 1919, remember the carrying capacity is 5,000. Um, here we have them milling up. Interesting ranch mates of buffalo and elk are the yak and the cattle, the latter being a cross between buffalo and domestic cattle. They did try to do some um, hybridization experiments to kind of try to learn more about uh, evolution and things like that. So here's some European yaks. The ancient feud renewed, a duel between buffalo and a yak. Although this video is actually of two yaks fighting, but anyway. <laughs> I don't pretend that the promo person knew. Um, in Canada's great buffalo park. That sounds like the refrain of a chorus of a song or something. Oh, here's a, a herd of the elk. Um, and you can see this is also shot when they were um, feeding them hay. So we have, look at how many elk there are in this herd. <laughs> um, and of course, they're all staring straight at the camera. They definitely know the, the, you know, the person taking the film is there. Um, <laughs> Some of the does are not averse to human association. Um, and this is not how uh, you know, elk are typically managed today. Uh, these are very habituated animals. Uh, for the podcast listeners, there's a warden feeding elk and horses hay. Um, one of the range riders has made a great pet of a jumping deer. Uh, jumping deer is another word for mule deer. Um, this is a young buck. And the deer, little deer, knows the way to the kitchen too. <laughs> 
I do love all the commentary they have here, but uh, I think we can probably pass, press pause here, but uh, yeah. So uh, there's actually quite a few of these uh, promotional videos online if you're interested. Um, this one in particular was from uh, Library and Archives Canada. All right, so Buffalo National Park is only the most well-documented of what I call the lost national parks of Canada, national parks that no longer exist. Um, so there were also other national parks that were founded. Um, in particular, there were two in Alberta. One was called Namaskam. One was called Wawaskasi. There was also a third one in southern Saskatchewan called um, Minnesawak. Um, these were all founded as game preserves, as, um, as uh, animal parks, specifically to protect pronghorn. So pronghorn populations were also in decline. Um, even, and apparently in the 1910s, early 1910s, the federal government even tried like a captive breeding program, but they didn't do very well in captivity. Um, so they decided, well, we'll fence some, some, uh, some pronghorn in um, to uh, help that those populations recover as well, protect them from hunters, protect them from other things. Um, so there's not a lot of documentation on these that I can find. Buffalo National Park, I'm so grateful to the research of Jennifer Brower. If you're interested in learning more, I highly recommend her book, Lost Tracks, all about the history of Buffalo National Park. Um, but Namaskam in particular, um, so Namaskam and Wawaskasi were both within driving distance of Medicine Hat, so southern Alberta, but all three of these parks were very tiny. I think that the all three of them, their landmass together was probably less than 100 square kilometers. Um, and uh, I'm not entirely sure if Minnesawak even ever got any pronghorn, um, but effectively, uh, Nemescam, they did the same move they did at Elk Island. They fenced three sides and chased more in <laughs> and then built up the fourth side entirely. I guess it was a standard practice at the time. Um, but these particular parks were created because local people were concerned about the pronghorn. There was one particular rancher who had taken to feeding starving pronghorn on his ranch um, because there was a, a really harsh winter in the early 1900s, I think 1907. And so people were agitating to protect these animals. Um, but my impression is like um, they, they might have only had one or two employees. Um, they might have had a little bit of hay. Like I'm not entirely sure. They never really took off in terms of tourism. And they just quietly drop out of tourist promotional material in the 1940s. Um, but here's the thing. Um, it's, I don't think that they necessarily failed. They, this might have actually been a success story in terms of pronghorn because the populations during that time recovered. Um, uh, Namaskam, the numbers were like, I think they enclosed about 40, 42 individuals. By the late 1930s, they had nearly 500. And in fact, um, as the snow got deeper, apparently they would escape. They would get over the fences all the time. <laughs> so they would get out. Um, so, and uh, here's the thing. So Namaskam um, and Buffalo National Park were both abolished in 1947. Now, um, if you're a super nerd like me and you know the history of Elk Island National Park, you're probably like, oh my gosh, that's when they got the isolation area south of Highway 16. That's now the wood bison area. I'm sure you're all thinking this, right? <laughs> um, so, um, so here's the thing. Uh, so Elk Island slowly grew. Actually, we'll advance to the next slide, please. Um, Back to Elk Island. So Elk Island slowly grew over the 20th century. It got a little bit more land all the way to what's now the Yellowhead Highway, Highway 16, um, in the 1920s. Um, and in 1947, the government was negotiating with the provincial government to gain additional land south of Highway 16 um, because the bison population was increasing and they were like, one good option is increasing the landmass that we have. That was not an option that was open to the people at Buffalo National Park. Um, but there was a lot of negotiation that happened between government agencies, of course, leaving indigenous folks out. Um, and uh, effectively, that, that land south of the highway was provincial land at that time. So there was a deal that happened. Elk Island would expand, Waterton Lakes National Park would shrink, Buffalo National Park and Namaskam would be abolished and that land reverted to the province. Um, and uh, so the, uh, my understanding is the, the forces base at Wainwright is actually a lease on provincial land, which is why there's, the province has the mineral rights over it. Anyway, it gets very, I'm not a legislative historian. <laughs> I love the history of animals, but legislation is not my jam. But that's the thing, there was a lot of this land trading going around at that particular time. Um, Here's the thing, what I love to think when I think about the history of Elk Island National Park is I love actually comparing it to the history of Buffalo National Park. Because for the first 
30 or so, 40 or so years, their trajectories were very similar. They had the same kind of, they were very similar kind of, I would say format, uh, structure to them. They were both fenced national parks. They had similar wildlife within them. They had similar pressures. Elk Island was also facing problems with disease, was also facing problems with overpopulation, was al also had an abattoir, also, had, also practiced culling, also sold off the meat, also sold off the hides. But Elk Island was able to learn from some of the mistakes of Buffalo National Park and react differently. And I'm not saying they didn't make mistakes, because all these places did make mistakes or decisions that we no longer agree with. Um, you know, you can still see evidence of this kind of history within the park today. Um, in what's now the Bison Loop area, park staff still refer to that kind of back area there as the hay meadows because they used to harvest hay there. Um, they used to grow hay to feed the bison there. Um, and uh, now it's been mostly restored to native prairie grassland, but you still got to watch for invasive species of plants, right? Um, but, uh, you know, Elk Island did a lot of work um, both, well, to expand the boundaries of the park. Um, they did create, so the area south of the highway, which is now the wood bison area, was once called the isolation area because they were trying to use that as a disease control measure, like a quarantine spot. Um, limited success, but they did do, um, you know, a, you know, through culling, through other disease prevention measures, they did eventually get declared disease-free in 1970-something. Um, and so, and they also were able to use live transfers as a good mechanism to reduce bison populations, right? Um, and again, not saying they're perfect, but it's very interesting to see how things could have gone because we have that very clear example from Buffalo National Park. Um, so like, what lessons can we learn from all of this? I mean, um, I think it's really important to think about national park history and these natural spaces as having a history. And that um, just because you create a national park doesn't mean that there can't be problems thereafter. You have to have members of the public care. You have to have park staff who care. You have to have that continued funding, that continued interest. Um, because again, national parks can shrink, they can grow, or they can cease to exist. Thank you very much. All right, uh, thank you so much, Lauren Markowitz. Um, hearing about the bison loop is so interesting. One of the weirdest, most magical times um, that my husband and I had at Elk Island was we had a friend visiting from Toronto and we wanted to show her Elk Island, and it was like an insanely buggy day. There were so many mosquitoes, and we, were, we like kept trying to take her to places and just getting chased back into the car. So we were like, okay, well, the one place that we're guaranteed to see something cool is the bison loop. So we stopped our car there just to watch the bison in the distance, and then they started coming closer and closer, and we were like, Roll up the windows, lock the doors. And we were waiting to see if like the other cars would zoom out. There were like four or five other cars there. And uh, we stayed in the car, and they like streamed around us as if we were like a pebble in the water. It was incredible. Thank you. Chris here in the present. Lauren's slideshow will be on our website along with the film she showed about Buffalo National Park. At this point we took a break and listeners jotted down questions to ask our panelists in the second half of the show about making a new national urban park. And while we mingled, we listened to the album Elk Island by Little Symphony, which you're also hearing now. The album features soundscapes recorded at places in the park like a Stoughton Lake, the Beaver Pond, and Hayburger. And this episode, by the way, is brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation. Want to feel great about your city? Check out the Edmonton Community Foundation's well-endowed podcast. If you live in Edmonton, chances are you've been touched by the work being done with the support of the Edmonton Community Foundation. On the well-endowed podcast, you'll hear stories about ECF's donors and grantees and all the ways they use this support to build and sustain social initiatives, empower youth, strengthen arts and culture, and so much more. In the most recent episode, Emily Rendell Watson explores the nuances around accessing food and helping people thrive, not just survive. If you dig through their back catalog, you might enjoy the stories about Edmonton history recorded by yours truly. Hear stories about our local heroes and community builders at thewellendowedpodcast.com or find The Well Endowed Podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. So, 
We've been learning about the foundations of national parks, and now we're going to talk about a different beast being proposed for Edmonton's River Valley, a national urban park. Canada has one already, Rouge National Urban Park just east of Toronto, and six more are being proposed across Canada. So our guests to help us learn more about this are Mac Mail and Miranda Jimmy. Mac is the co-founder and CEO of Taproot Publishing, which helps communities understand themselves better. The company's flagship digital news outlet is Taproot Edmonton, which among other things publishes a weekday newsletter called The Pulse and a weekly municipal affairs podcast called Speaking Municipally, which Mac co-hosts. Prior to becoming an entrepreneurial journalist, Mac spent more than a decade working in software development, and he's going to tell us about Speaking Municipally's reporting on the new park. Miranda Jimmy is a passionate Edmontonian, a member of Thunderchild First Nation. Miranda's professional life has focused on contributing to her community in a variety of ways. She's training in arts and cultural management, conflict resolution, negotiation, and communications. She's made a career in the arts and heritage sector, which is where our paths first cross, working with many different nonprofit organizations, nations, governments, and private businesses. And Miranda currently works for the Confederacy of Treaty 6 First Nations, managing their role in the development of a new national urban park in Edmonton. So, Mac. What is a national urban park? Well, to some extent, I suppose it remains to be seen. We, we know the one in the GTA is a national urban park, um, but it, ultimately in August of 2021, the federal government announced this national urban park initiative. They attached a big dollar sign to it, $130 million, and started this process to talk about uh, the creation of these national urban parks at various sites across Canada, and uh, Edmonton is one of them. Why is the federal government trying to create more? I think what Lauren said about how some parks are there to preserve the view and some are there to preserve or safeguard the animals. I think the word urban in this national urban park is really important. That's why they're you know, doing this in, in my estimation. I'd be curious to hear what Miranda thinks. But uh, <laughs> the fact that more than 70% of Canadians live in urban centers, I think is really important for uh, this discussion. And the whole idea is around um, bringing urbanites uh, closer to nature, but also part of Canada's commitments to meeting climate change goals. Um, we know the benefits of more nature, of uh, carbon sequestration in trees and all those kinds of great things. Um, they see the creation of these national urban parks as part of uh, the way that they can reach their, their commitments around uh, ecological preservation. Which are pretty ambitious, like in the next seven years, we're aiming for 30% of Canada's land and marine places to be protected spaces. Yeah, like 25% by 2030, and then it jumps up again right after that. Like they're quite ambitious targets, and I'm not exactly sure uh, how a national urban park in Edmonton is gonna preserve the marine parts of our country, but that's part of the explanation. Yeah. So uh, some of the other parks, like, Windsor and Halifax are a little bit farther along this process. What has happened so far with the National Urban Park process in Edmonton? Uh, well, I pay attention to City Council pretty closely, as you said, off the top. And one of the things that's really interesting to me is the number of times that this has already come up at Council. Uh, I think we've had more discussions at Council about the creation of this park than we did about how much money we were going to give the Edmonton Police Service this year, so that's kind of interesting. Um, there's four phases to this process from Parks Canada. So there's pre-feasibility, -feas not feasibility, planning, uh, designation, and implementation. And so right away in November, we started this pre-feasibility stage, and it was to determine uh, whether this might be feasible to do in Edmonton and what the location might be. So there was three locations being considered in Edmonton. We've now ultimately settled on the River Valley as the location, although not all of it. The boundaries will probably change because the River Valley is pretty big. Um, probably won't start quite that big right off the top. Uh, and then most recently, we've now agreed to move from the pre-feasibility stage into the planning phase. And so just at uh, City Council this summer, um, administration kind of brought this report back and said, here's where we're at. We think it's the River Valley. We go to the next stage. And Council voted to do that 10 to 3. Um, in 2022, so in the middle of all of this, is when uh, the Confederacy of Treaty Six Nations and, and Métis Nation of Alberta joined this collaboration between Parks Canada and the city. Um, but as Miranda will probably tell you more, uh, it's not quite clear exactly what that means. And is this potentially just going to be a handover of city-owned land to the federal government? What could potentially be added or improved by Parks Canada from what we've seen maybe from the other cities? 
well, you'll have to start paying admission. Uh, you won't be able to do anything fun. Um, it, it, it's not clear exactly what will happen. They've been surprisingly vague, actually, in some of the communications. The city of Edmonton uh, has said that they have no intention for any ownership change to happen here. Parks Canada's position is that some parks will be done in collaboration with local authorities. Others might actually become managed and owned by Parks Canada. Uh, it doesn't seem like that's on tap for Edmonton. Um, the reason that city council seems to be keen to go after this, or most of them at least, is the, the opportunity to potentially access federal funding for preservation, that's part of it, for um, reconciliation efforts, for programming, that kind of thing. So I don't think much will change, actually. Um, and I mentioned that it was 10 to three, the vote. One of the councillors who voted against it was Councillor Tim Cartmel. And his argument essentially is that we already have strong regulations protecting our river valley. Indeed, in our zoning bylaw, which we're about to renew, the very first zone ever created in the city of Edmonton was to protect the river valley. So I think he makes a good point, actually, that we don't need you know, the federal government necessarily to come in and, and do anything to change how we protect this land. Uh, but obviously, anytime the federal government or any higher order of government dangles some money in front of us, there's uh, some appeal that council will find with that opportunity. I was talking to Julia Breeze, the manager of the National Urban Parks and Strategic Policy Program within Parks Canada, and um, she said, from her perspective, they were looking for ways that they could like, add something to the experience, whether that is um, efforts towards reconciliation or like improving trails, maybe. Or um, one piece that she said was interesting from the Windsor example was like there was city land and provincial land that were kind of adjacent to each other, but there was a, a bit of land towards the river that, that th they were disconnected from the river and so Parks Canada happened to own that land anyway federally, so that whole stretch is gonna become one national urban park, which, yeah, it would be interesting to see what actually happens in Edmonton if that goes forward. Yeah, and I mean, if you know, if you follow the news about the, the river valley, we of course have lots of efforts underway to celebrate our river valley, right? With the, the whole connection all the way up and down and the trails and the pathways, like it's not like they're coming in to do something to land that is not looked after mm. or well used and well loved by people in the area. So Miranda. Yes. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about why is the Confederacy of Treaty Six First Nations involved in the planning process as a partner? Well, historically, and you would have heard this a bit in Lauren's presentation, is that um, Indigenous people have been not part of the equation in the development of national parks previously. Uh, in fact, it's been detrimental, forced removal, forced relocation, um, removal of harvesting rights, ceremonial sites, um, lots of bad things. Um, so our current government is trying to approach the uh, national urban parks differently. Um, there are three kind of pillars to this this project. Uh, one is uh, preserving nature and connecting people with nature, and the third is reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. So all of the sites that are being considered nationally are um, focused on building relationships with local Indigenous groups. Um, the City of Edmonton, from what I've, chosen, uh, what I've been told, was chosen because the City of Edmonton has an existing memorandum of understanding with both the Confederacy of Treaty 6 and the Métis Nation of Alberta. And so those provided a groundwork for the municipality to to bring in Indigenous partners in a good way at the ground level. What is the Confederacy's goal or like group of goals? What's the little nest of hopeful outcomes? Well, I think, you know, there, as Mac mentioned, there's lots of things happening in the River Valley and because of our existing relationship with the city, we've been involved in many of those projects, you know, most notably Rossdale and River Crossing. Um, you know, we're working with EPCOR on flood mitigation. Um, you know, there's burial sites and other ecological sites in the in the River Valley. Um, Horlack Park is under redevelopment. The River Valley um, revitalization and, and um, zoning review. All of those are happening, and we're at the table for that because of our relationship with the city. Um, with the with the urban park specifically. Um, I don't know is the answer. I don't know where the Confederacy sits because um, we haven't been able to do engagement yet. Um, our chiefs are going to be first in hearing 
uh, more about the park. I think more has been shared, as Mac mentioned, if you watch city council meetings, that's where the information has come. Um, there hasn't been a lot of public communication about it, and um, our chiefs have not been briefed on it yet. So that's, that's kind of my number one goal over the fall, is to make sure that the member nations, our 16 member nations, understand what this park is, what our relationship to it as the Confederacy is, and what uh, opportunities there will be for them to influence what happens with decision making and make sure that our interests are um, upheld as treaty partners in the work. Mac mentioned the city of Edmonton was brought on into the conversation earlier than the other partners. Um, what, what has been your role so far? And, and also, if you want to talk about that late um, invitation to the process, we'd love to hear about that too. Well, you know, so I started my role five weeks ago with the Confederacy, and it's the first time we've had a, a position at the table with capacity to be there. And so we're 18 months into the process, and so I think that says something in itself. Um, I, I also think that the federal government, like many Canadians, are figuring out what reconciliation actually means. So what does it mean to be a treaty partner? What does that look like in decision-making processes, in budget planning, in um, boundary site selection, in um, programming planning? What does that look like if we are a true partner? For now, um, it's all yet to be seen. I think that the Confederacy wants to be at the table because historically, this has been our gathering place. This is where our ceremonies happen. This is where our medicines were collected. This is where our culture exists within the city boundaries. And so thinking about that and our relationship both to the city of Edmonton and the specific place, we have obligations under the treaty and under our own cultural traditions to not only think about human beings, but all of the two-legged, the four-legged, the winged, the fin, the flowing, and the rooted relatives that we're responsible for. And I think often, especially in an urban setting, we are focused on what does this mean for human beings? What's it gonna mean for me? What's it gonna mean for what I wanna do with my family? Um, and those other things become secondary. And I think our responsibility at the table is to make sure that those other things are foundational as opposed to secondary. Um, you've talked about the pace of what's happened already. How are you feeling about the pace of what's ahead? I'm feeling okay. Um, the uh, Confederacy has to build a relationship with Parks Canada. Um, we have to figure out how we work together, how we solve problems, how we make decisions, how we hold each other accountable. And with any new relationship, those things will require good c communication um, and open and honest dialogue, um, and so we're just at the beginning stages of that. Um, there's a bit of a honeymoon phase that happens with any relationship, and it's not until we get to those tough questions that we'll figure out how we work together. And I think that um, you know some big, big conversations are gonna happen over the next 12 months um, as we start talking about specific site selection, um, co-management or governance models for the park, um, and how we work with our other Indigenous partner at the table, the Métis Nation. Um, what are some of the things that either the two of you, Mac and Miranda, think we can learn from how Rouge Urban National Park has been implemented and how the processes are going maybe in the other cities? Well, I, I keep being told by Parks Canada that Rouge is not the example we're following. It was a test in this idea of an, an urban national park, but there's a specific set of models and values that is governing this new set, which I think is different. Um, I would also say that Parks Canada has probably learned a lot as far as um, working with municipal partners through that and thinking about how to integrate this into an environment, um, kind of placing it on top of something um, established versus um, I would say national parks were kind of terra nullius, empty land that we put a box around and decided what was going to be there. I mean, the only thing I've picked up on so far is that they seem cognizant that they're all going to be quite different. And so there won't be like a template that they just follow for all of these national urban parks. There's lots of different factors at play and different relationships and organizations. And so I'm not sure how many lessons we'd take from one of the other projects to apply to our specific context in the end. One of the um, 
interesting nuances, I think, is that the, the language is so similar. National Park, they're under Parks Canada, but um, when I had talked to Julia Brees, who's managing this program, she wanted to really emphasize that the national parks are managed under the National Parks Act, and these will be policy creations. Do either of you have any like th thoughts on the perks or potential pitfalls of that? Well, you know, to echo what Max said, every park is going to look and feel different depending on who's at the table and what they want, um, and and what existing infrastructure is there, what the land use is, if if new land needs to be acquired. All of those are variables in every city. Um, I think the reason, you know they're making that choice though, is because there are existing legislation provincially and municipally with bylaws of what already exists there and what, and so it would just complicate things to put in a federal piece of legislation in all of these varying states. And we have other things happening that are confusing enough already. So I'm thinking about the Canadian Heritage River system, and we're also working to designate our part of the North Saskatchewan River, a uh, Canadian Heritage River. I, I'm, I don't know. I'm very curious to know what that means in relation to a national urban park. <laughs> in addition to, all, as you say, all of the existing legislation that's already, already there. It seems like a lot of layers, potentially, uh, for um, a place that is, is well-known and well-loved already. And I can say the Confederacy would love to know more about this um, designation of the river, because we haven't been part of that conversation. One of the questions I was very curious about is, like, the, uh, the city of Edmonton has a lot of rules, but is also relatively chill right now about gathering things in the River Valley, um, which this is my thesis research is about like gathering and collecting as a way of contact and knowing nature. So I had asked Julia, um, when it comes to harvesting or gathering things, what might that look like? And um, it was an impressively vague answer. <laughs> When it comes to harvesting or gathering things from nature, we will look at the cultural importance of these practices, whether there are any negative impacts in biodiversity, and the protection and respect of treaty and Aboriginal rights. I understand that in many urban contexts, the potential contamination of lands may be an added layer to consider, which did not speak to any specifics and also didn't really answer my question about how this might um, affect how non-Indigenous people um, have contact with nature too, which I, I don't know how you classify something as being enough to say that it's a, a culturally important practice. Um, yeah. So I want to get into some of your questions. Thank you. Uh, do, sorry, Evic, Evia, Evie. Uh, why did they use the word island for Elk Island National Park? I believe this one is for Lauren. Thank you. Yeah, that's a, it's a very straightforward question in some ways. Um, so a lot of the documents in like the 80s and 90s say, oh, it's an island of unique biodiversity. Um, as far as I can tell from newspapers from the early, like 1910, um, it's because a Stoughton Lake used to be called Island Lake, and it was mostly a Stoughton Lake. So it was an island, there was elk there, there was an island there, um, Elk Island National Park. That's what the newspapers attributed to it in 1910, so I believe that. All right, thank you. Um, Lauren, this one is unattributed. Lauren was going to say more about the yaks. Uh, also, I have, is there really an ancient feud between yak and bison? <laughs> well, I can't speak to the politics of yak and bison and things like that. But no, effectively, the reason there were yaks in that national park at all um, is because, um, so there was the national park folks, the parks, um, but there was also like agricultural, um, there was a federal department doing agricultural research as well. And there was this idea of, well, we can maybe um, uh, learn more about how to create a better cow or something like that, um, thinking about jump-starting evolution. And this is, this is linked to eugenics, this idea of the perfect bovine is the European domestic cow, and then yaks are somewhere in between because they're like semi-domesticated or domestic. I'm actually not very familiar with yaks. And then you have the bison. Um, but they were like, oh, well, bison are really great at surviving on the landscape, so maybe we can like interbreed things in between, which is how you get the cattle hybrids, but they also interbred yaks with bison as well. <laughs> may or may not have contributed to the disease problem. They were mostly Weird. kept segregated from the other animals, but like, anyway, that's a little bit more about yaks. If you're interested in learning more, I recommend Jennifer Brower's book on the park called Lost Tracks. Thank you for giving us insights, insights into the promiscuous history of parks. <laughs> Uh, somebody asked the question in green. You were the only person that... Yes, Kaylee. OK, 
Okay, hi, I'm Kaylee. Um, I guess from an educational perspective and just because there's so many stakeholders, I'm really curious about like what success would look like from these different perspectives. So what is the benefit to Edmontonians in regards to this national urban park? Um, the goal of the federal government in terms of why they're pursuing it seems like it's linked to climate change, but I mean, <laughs> the Edmonton River Valley is arguably already pulling more than its own weight in regards to Edmonton's climate change actions. Um, and then also to the Treaty 6 Confederacy in terms of, um, you know, we, I, I, worked, I worked at the museum previously and I feel like we saw a lot of spaces that were set out with good intentions about reconciliation, uh, but then when you thought about like what do people actually look like in those spaces, really kind of fell short of a lot of our hopes. And I think when you consider like how often Indigenous people um, find themselves in parks under less than ideal circumstances, um, I feel like there has to be something to kind of consider what that looks like, particularly a relationship with the land. Um, and then also from an ecological perspective, as a dog walker, <laughs> which again, not a good ecological uh, use of the land in some regards in terms of the, the cost of it, um, but also something that's of great value as an Edmontonian and a recreational opportunity in my city. So I guess I'd just be curious to hear about some of those hopes and dreams. What does success look like from all those lenses? Thank you. Um, who wants to take this one first? Miranda. You know, a short answer on behalf of, of Treaty 6 is that um, we want to make sure that our treaty rights are inherent to whatever decisions are made. Uh, right now, most of the River Valley and the sites that are being considered are already parkland. They're already designated by the city and used in that fashion. Um, so it's hard to imagine that there um, is opportunities to think about untouched land. But I think really that would be beautiful if that was the case if we could think about specifically the urban sprawl that's happening and the sections of our river valley that are somewhat untouched um, maybe um, on the eye of developers for the future and think about this as a as a multi-generational act as opposed to a present-day act that will benefit edmontonians today so um you know we are only one partner at the table um, I can't speak on behalf of the chiefs of Treaty 6 who haven't shared their opinions yet on this. And so I hope in the coming weeks and months, you'll hear more from us and from our chiefs about what we vision for the park and what's gonna be important for us at the table. Uh, I don't know if I am qualified to answer this question, but uh, there's counselors here. You might ask them what they hope will happen. Um, I think uh, one of the uh, best case scenarios could be that we are able to access some funding that we did not have access to before and that not a whole lot else changes with our river valley. Um, and a personal hope of mine is that this discussion about this national urban park doesn't take away from all of the other green spaces that we have and need in the city of Edmonton. Um, I think more access to green space for, for people who live in cities is really important. Um, and there's a risk potentially that this big national urban park takes up all the energy in the room and we start to lose sight of some of the other little parks that we, you know, frequently talk about developing and when new developments happen, you know, plan for and, and those kinds of things. So, um, you know, if we can access some funding, we can bring some, some great programming to the table uh, for that space and if we can advance both the federal government's as well as the city of Edmonton's goals around reconciliation through this process, then I think that would be a big win. Um, I don't think we need to see a lot in terms of like ownership change or, or governance change in order for those things to happen. Those little parks, it's so funny. I, like, I make f a little bit of fun of um, post office clock tower park downtown, <laughs> but I really love that rule that like when you subdivide land, 10% of it becomes a reserve that could be a park, could be a weird triangle. Well, let's end it there. Um, thank you to all of our guests, Mac, Miranda, and Lauren.
This episode of Let's Find Out was produced by Trevor Chow Fraser and me, Chris Chang M. Phillips. Additional help this evening by Sophia Young, Dylan Hall, Jason Wong, Karen Unlin, Kyle Muzika, Julia Breeze, and many others flitting around behind the scenes, um, including my husband, Finn Phillips, who deserves a full round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. And my mom, Denise Chang Yan. Thanks, mom. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you to all of our question askers this season. Kay Rollins, Shelly Jodwenshinar, Karen Unland, Matthew Thompson, Sony Dasmohapatra, Zulima Acuna, Kyla Tichkowski, and Catherine Guanyin Lennon. And to everybody who submitted questions to our story garden. Round of applause to you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, to our community of experts who helped us chase down answers, to our City of Edmonton hosts here at the Savage Center, to our Patreon donors, to the folks behind the Alberta Podcast Network where we started the season, and to Tappert Edmonton who scooped us up happily afterward. Um, if you want to support Let's Find Out, become a Taproot member, and thank you to everyone who has. It's just 10 bucks a month, it's 100 bucks a year, and you help ensure that people have access to great free stuff like this. Um, podcasts like Speaking Municipally, of course, which Mac is on, um, plus the rest of Taproot coverage of city council, food, health, innovation, business, and more. Learn more at taprootedmonton.ca slash join. That's taprootedmonton.ca slash join. If you are a Taproot member and you're here tonight, thank you again. Uh, big shout out to Cub Reporter Elliot. She had a lot to add to many episodes of this season, so thank you, Elliot. Uh, original music by the dazzlingly lovely human being Doug Hoyer. Music in this episode that you heard by Little Symphony. Uh, thanks to everyone who's been supporting this podcast, especially Finn. Um, we are taking a couple months off before we announce our next season, which leaves you lots of time to leave us a five-star review explaining why you loved our show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Until next time, keep your questions coming. <laughs>